Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the specialist digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Now, for long-time listeners, you will probably already know who we are. You may have even heard one of our ads on a previous episode of this podcast. But for those of you who don't, here is a short introduction. At Create Engage, we help you create an effective marketing strategy for your consultancy, a strategy that will resonate with your target clients. And then we support you by delivering the campaigns you need to turn that strategy into a reality, helping you to build your brand, raise your profile with your prospective clients, and ultimately generate return on investment from your marketing activity. Now, I could tell you about many of the great clients that we work with and the results we've delivered for them. But instead, I'm going to do something much more powerful and something that I would recommend you do for your own marketing. I'm going to let our clients do the talking for us. If you are currently thinking about marketing for your consultancy, you're going to want to listen to this. Create Engage started the process for us. They managed it end to end. They came up with some really creative ideas and we were really happy with the work that they did, which meant that we could just focus on running the business. Not only did we start conversations with clients that we hadn't spoken to before, but also there was tangible return on investment by some work that we were given. They've helped right from the initial shaping of the idea through to helping us work out what our end goal was. They've supported us with the visual identity and our positioning of the brand. We've had an immediate expansion of our network and, and have initiated a raft of new conversations with owners, CEOs in, in target client organisations and has led to us winning new projects already. One of the greatest compliments, I guess, is that one of our competitors even said that uh, they really like what we're doing with marketing. They wish they could be doing something as good. So from our perspective, we couldn't recommend Create Engage any more than this. I would certainly recommend Create Engage if you're a consulting firm. They really understand consultancies and the sort of challenges we face. And, uh, you know, I don't think you're going to get much better marketing anywhere else. So I wouldn't hesitate to recommend Create Engage. They did a really good job for us. So if you're looking for an agency that can help you achieve the results that our clients just described, then head to our website, createengage.co.uk, where you can find out more about how we support consulting firms like you. You can download our latest ebook and you can get in touch to talk about how we can help you take your consultancy to the next level through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to today's very special episode of Climate Consulting. Today, we have two big milestones for the show. First is, as you've probably seen from the title, this is episode 100 of Climate Consulting. It is crazy to think that something I started as a hobby and a bit of a passion project just over four years ago has got to 100 episodes. Along the way, it has had a huge impact on me and hopefully had an impact on you and your consulting career. From my perspective, it, it led to launching Create Engage and the business that I now run with a great team and a whole great raft of fantastic consulting clients. It's also led to me meeting some brilliant people as guests who have gone on to be friends, gone on to be clients, and just people who I've learned so much from along the journey. Now, obviously, I want to say a big thank you to you, to my listeners, because without you, we wouldn't have got anywhere near this. I think I've said a few times on the show, I started this with the idea that no one would listen, maybe my family, and I would shut the show down after probably three or four episodes. And here we are a hundred later, and it's amazing to hear the impact that this has 
for you, the benefits you're getting from it. And I've loved the conversations that I've had with listeners along the way, people like yourself, sharing how the podcast helped them, sharing the impact it's had on their career, and just sharing how you're enjoying it. Because that's why I do it, is something for you to help build your career, to help you learn, and ultimately to help you achieve success. The clue's in the name. Help you climb in consulting. Also worth saying thank you to my guests. I know that many of my guests are also listeners. And thank you to you, because without you, without you giving up your time to come on the show and share your advice, we would have no episode. So a big thank you to my guests as well. And so what's the second milestone? Well, today, episode 100, we have our first OBE. It's an honor. It's a clear sign that the podcast is going up in the world. And it's a nice way to round off that first 100 episodes. And so... With those big announcements done, who is today's guest and what are we talking about? Well, today I talk to Hugo Walkinshaw OBE. Over his long consulting career, Hugo has held senior roles in several of the biggest names in the business, including PwC, Deloitte and EY, helping them to build and grow their businesses in Singapore and across Asia. As well as his consulting roles, Hugo is a big believer in the importance of giving back outside of work and has spent much of his latter career focused on giving back to a range of charities and social enterprises. In fact, it was his work with the British Chamber of Commerce in Singapore that led to him receiving his OBE. We had a great conversation for this episode. Hugo made the trip to our office in Bath and it was brilliant to have a face-to-face conversation for the podcast. And we covered a whole range of topics, including why Hugo decided to move to Asia in the first place, what kept him there for so long, and his advice to others on how to make that move a success. The tragic events that completely reshaped his perspective on life and his advice to others, his advice to you on how you can learn the same lessons without having to go through that same pain yourself. And how he has been able to balance his roles outside of consulting with his work as a senior Big Four partner. He shares the example of the British Chamber of Commerce in Singapore, how that came about and how he balanced it. And he talks about why supporting charities and social enterprises is such a big focus for him today. Whether you are early in your career and considering a move to Asia, or maybe you're more senior and struggling to find the time to fit all of the passions and projects you want to do outside of consulting into your busy working week, this conversation will give you the motivation and practical advice you need to make it happen. So, with the intro done and dusted, All that's left to say is please enjoy today's episode 100 of Climbing Consulting and my conversation with Hugo Walkinshaw, OBE. Hugo, welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, firstly, thank you for coming all the way to Bath for this. You're actually going to be this very special accolade. You're episode 100. This interview will be episode 100 of the podcast. So thank you for not only making it a special episode, but making the special trip down here as well. That's a pleasure. Centenary test. Perfect. (laughs) And I think we've got a lot to talk about. Obviously, you were introduced to me by Jeff over at Lancia Consult, former guest on the show, and... He doesn't introduce people lightly, so I'm very excited for our conversation. I know we've had a few chats pre this. Um, so to kick us off, why don't we dive in for those who maybe don't know you as well? It'd be great if you can just share your background and, and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, absolutely. And please, uh, if I take this conversation too long, uh, wave at me or intervene. So I am a history graduate by, by background, um, history through school and then university, born and brought up in the UK. And 
I didn't really know what I wanted to do uh, leaving university. So in that sort of furious round of, of interviews and, and, and uh, companies turning up on site at uni to, to, to pitch their wares, I kind of fell into this category of consulting. And I ended up joining what was then called Coopers and Libra and Deloitte uh, in 1991. It was a little strange because Coopers and Libra subsequently merged with PW in 1998 to create PwC. But, but prior to that, there'd been various parts of the world where the firm had gone off and done different things. So 1991, Coopers and Libra and Deloitte in London. I then went with Coopers to Asia in 1995. I rejoined Deloitte in 1999 and stayed with the firm until 2014, at which point I moved on to EY, still in consulting, still in Asia. And then after that into a uh, small privately owned um, automation and data company. So kind of a little bit beyond the startup, sort of post Series A. So that, and I was in 2019. So that's kind of the the trajectory. So roughly speaking, 30 years in, in the big four in consulting, and then two years in, in in the technology world. Kind of within that, the focus was very much around manufacturing. So so the, the, you always join a sector and you join a service line. So my service line was always consulting. My sector was manufacturing. So in the UK, it was heavy industry. Um, I remember aerospace and defense and automotive dominating the first four years of my life. You probably spent quite a lot of time down here, I imagine, with Rolls-Royce and all of the airline and airplane builders over in Bristol. Was I, I would have hoped to have done so, but I seem to spend more time in Stevenage and Hillfield <laughs> going to see British Aerospace. So um, that was a, a memorable program of work, but it was, uh, it was great fun driving through London every morning and, and getting up there. So the heavy industry manufacturing piece just just really stuck with me. And when I went to Asia, it became high tech. So just a, a reflection, I guess, of the of the industries and their relative importance. So semiconductor equipment, semiconductors, and then that first layer of of industries that that would benefit from chips. So consumer electronics, domestic appliances, some automotive again, and med devices. And I did that for probably five to seven years. And then in the early 2000s, I found myself working a lot in med devices. And that was the pull for me to move across into life sciences. So I've kind of majored in life sciences uh, since the turn of the century. Can I say that? Yeah. So since about 2000, which has been both a passion as well as, as, well as a sort of a, a work focus. It's been a, a hugely kind of um, uh, inspiring area to work in. And I very much enjoyed it. And I continue that to the day. So that's, that's now my kind of my new role back in the UK. And then from a kind of a, a competency and a, and, a, and a function point of view, I've always been uh, in the back office, if I can use that phrase. So I graduated as a management accountant uh, with SEMA, and I have focused around finance, HR, procurement, and IT, everything from digital transformation through to service delivery models, offshoring work, shared service centers, putting in new systems. And actually, that led me on the journey sort of through the digital piece into automation and, and uh, digitization. So... So kind of in a rather large nutshell, that's the that's the journey. Quite a lot for us to cover in the next hour and a half or so, but lo- lots of really interesting things to dig in there. And maybe to start with, because you, you mentioned sort of your history degree, and I, I don't often go all the way back to sort of degree time, but it just intrigued me, given you said you, you ended up in sort of manufacturing life sciences, what you might call the more technical professions. I also did a social science degree, so I say this as, as one of you, is that's often not a route that people take into the sciences. It's usually like consulting, yes, but usually on the softer side. How did you go from history into technical manufacturing and semiconductors, like you said, sort of that journey? 
Yeah, not intuitive and certainly not planned. I think the history was really both a combination of something I was good at at school and at university and I enjoyed, but actually it was a passion. And through university and actually through now, if I look at my bookshelves and look at what it is I read, I read an awful lot of history. And the nature and the focus of the history I read through A-levels and through uni was actually what was then called modern history and, and I think imperial history. So I did a ton of history around Asia, around Africa, and that just, I think, created the buzz, if you will, or the lure of, of going overseas. So that was sort of one aspect of it. Once I went overseas, I think doing history was about just reading large amounts of material and being able to distill it down. So, so it, was about, it was about being able to consume information and then to play it back and to form some conclusions and to look for patterns and to look for repetitions. And I think all of that actually is fairly applicable in most walks of life. So I, I see it as maybe just a core discipline that it gave me in terms of the structure of the course and the learning mechanisms. But actually, the content was much more relevant to, to where I ended out as opposed to what I was doing. Now, it makes a lot of sense. I, I think, like you say, it's that skill in consulting to absorb yeah, reams and reams of information and then distill that, which I imagine a history degree gave you in spades. I'll kind of jump the how you got into consulting and, and take me back there if it's a poignant story. But I'd be really interested in that move to Asia. The reason being, it's not quite over yet, but COVID is soon going to become the past. I know you were saying actually out in Asia, it's very different at the moment. So that might help anyone thinking they're going to go. It might be another year. But for people who are thinking about moving countries, continents, traveling with work, I'm always interested to speak to people who've done it because it's quite a big thing to do. And I imagine when you did it, it was an even bigger thing because that was the days before Facebook, WhatsApp. You know, you, the connectivity wasn't there to just chat with your friends at home. How did that opportunity come about? Really interested in and sort of what was it that led you to actually go, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do this? It, it, again, not a, not a huge sort of plan. I think it just evolved. But when I left university before I started the role, I had taken a year off after school and I'd gone to Asia. So I had a choice of going to Africa or going to Asia to, to backpack. And I ended up spending eight months traveling around Asia, you know, top to bottom, which was fantastic. My wife, who I met at university, had done the same thing and gone to India. So we both had this sort of firm view of, of, of the Far East as being a place that we enjoyed and, and traveled to. And in the four or five years that we were living in London, we tended to, to bag up all our holiday and then go and spend a month somewhere. So we went off and did a month in Vietnam and a month in Sri Lanka. And I think just during those years, it kind of evolved for both of us into a, a place that we probably wanted to go and live. I also, with work, there's a sort of a logical sort of three, four-year cycle. So you join on a graduate scheme and you do your first three, four years of hard yards and, and go through your associate levels. And in my case, that was in parallel with doing my, my SEMA management accounting exams. So I got to the end of four years and I kind of finished the exams and qualified and got to the end of the graduate program. And there's a lot of people who at that point pivot and go and do something else. So people want to go and join a bank or people want to leave and go and start their own company or go and work in a smaller company or move out of London. So so it's, it's definitely a, a a pivot moment. And we also found a lot of our friends were beginning to kind of move in together and settle down. And it all looks scarily grown up kind of way too early. And, and we just thought maybe it's worth having a look to see if we could go overseas. And I think the, 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 the luck for me was that the two people that recruited me out of university both went overseas. So after four years, I found that the two mentors or the kind of guys I worked for became mentors. One had gone to Africa and one had gone to Asia. And so there was that sort of, actually I had a choice and, and they came calling and just said, you know, come and join us. And so we got faced with the choice of Johannesburg or, or Singapore. 
and actually quite torn. I think that the, the conclusion we came to is that we could work in one and travel in the other, and that probably working and living in Asia and traveling to Africa was a better bet than working and living in Africa and traveling to Asia. Plus, my wife was in charge and she loved India, so we went. And that was it. And we went, and I think she thought for two years, I thought for three, and it just evolved from there. We did three years in Singapore and then got the chance to go to Hong Kong. We then did three years in Hong Kong and decided to go back to Singapore. We were married at that point and, and expecting our, our first. And um, that was the pivot to move back. We then had a couple of children fairly quickly, and suddenly it was 2005 and we'd been away 10 years. So it just catches up with you it wasn't like we went to a place and stayed there we, we were moving around a lot and, and having a lot of fun and um it just became a bit of a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy 27 years later i love it and i was going to ask you why singapore over johannesburg but you answered that for me and how did you find it moving there in those early days because i think you know that story says why you ended up there and like you said there's mentors you know that sort of opportunity and luck meet each other how was it when you moved over there? Because again, the world's now a much more connected place. But what were those early starts of talk about the time frame that's relevant? A few weeks, months, how did you find moving over there? Fascinating, slightly confronting, lots of opportunity, which with hindsight, I probably didn't take advantage of. So just a few few kind of data points. So for the first year, I had no mobile phone and I shared a laptop with four other people. So in terms of communication and being able to meet people and 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 um, be in touch with people there, let alone back here, it really was desk phones. You know, that that was, you know, you rang somebody up and said, I'll, I'll see you for lunch at 12 o'clock on Saturday. And that was it. You had no way of cancelling. So so kind of it was old school. It was very analog. Can, can I just pause a second? How did you share a lap? Was that a timeshare basis? Was it sort of a, you know, first come first? So how, how did that work? It stayed firmly in the office and we rotated through it on an hourly basis. And that was enough to check our Lotus Notes mail and to work in... Uh, whatever it was called back then, freelance graphics. So yeah, yeah it's, <laughs> I feel very old saying that. But uh, yeah, it was it was a case of, um, it was basically a desktop, a laptop that we use as a desktop and it stayed in the office. So not good. So I think there, there was definitely that sense of having to be much more forward. And when people say, I've got a really good friend who lives in Singapore, or a friend of my parents lives in Singapore, you know, here's a number, call them. There's a massive a sort of reluctance to do so. And I think that's probably a, maybe a British reserve thing. But with hindsight, I wish I'd done more because when you're on the other end of that and somebody rings you out the blue saying, so-and-so has put me in touch, you absolutely expect it. You absolutely want to help people. You'll get people over for a drink or dinner. You'll take them out and, and uh, you, you you give back because everybody has been in that position at some point. And when you're first in that position, you don't know that. So there's probably a reluctance. And I think in, if I could go back and change one thing, I probably wish I had, had taken advantage of some of those connections that I was given. So you have to be confident um, and you're not being rude. You're not interfering. You're not kind of getting in the way. People give their details because they expect to be called. So I think it was about just being bold and just embracing it. It's a really interesting thing. So a friend of mine in Bath, actually, he lived out in China for a long time and talks a lot about exactly that, that kind of expat network and that that connection with people who are moving there. And, you know, that, that sort of carries you almost, it becomes a bit of a club. How did you do it then? So obviously you, you didn't take some of those phone calls you said. How, how did you start to bed into Singapore and was it work friends? Was it 
other clubs how did you do that in the early days so if you're younger you don't have kids then there's a few logical things so sort of what so if you turn up and you have children in school school becomes quite a, a magnet sports you know if you if you love your rugby or your cricket or your football you join clubs and you turn up and again it's very sort of welcoming you realize pretty quickly that there's quite a lot of turnover of people so that these sort of organizations and, and institutions are all absolutely geared for people who are there for two years and leave again so it's not like you're turning up and everybody knows each other and has been together for years so it, it takes a little bit of experimentation to work that out. The workplace, so just meeting people at work, people are very, very friendly, very giving. They make a real effort to kind of to take you out for food and, and sort of get you bedded in. And kind of luck, just, just connections. So the younger brother of my neighbor in London, who I'd sort of known for three, four years, was also moving out to Singapore. And he moved out the same week that I did. And turns out he'd been raised there and his mum still lived there. And so that was a great kind of segue for us into seeing places and meeting people very early on that I think a lot of people perhaps wouldn't ever do if they were there for two, three years. So kind of plugging into the Singaporean community, finding great places to eat, just sort of getting under the skin of a, of a location pretty quickly. So again, luck, but I think also you, know, you, you make your luck. So I'm hesitating because I... I want to go on to the work life, but just because you mentioned around how long you've lived there. And I know I didn't actually talk about it with Jeff, but I know he lived out there for a, for a long time, has done for a long time. Just what you said there around the fact that it is geared up to people that, you know, they do a stint, like you said, three, four years, you do your time and then you, you come back, you've had your fun. Actually, given you stayed there for an extended period of time, almost how do you build those connections? Do you just accept that you make really great friends for three years that you then, you know, you keep, but you don't see as much or... How have you approached that? Yeah, it's it's a strange one because when you're first there, you you end out. It's a bit like going to university, and in the first term, maybe even the first year, you you meet all sorts of people, and and you you kind of you're conscious that you're new, and so you just accept everything, and you reach out to everybody, and you make friends, and you know you you just get to know a lot of people. And then in years two and three, you begin to kind of gravitate back towards people that you feel familiar with or comfortable with and kind of moving out of halls and going into houses and, and into smaller groups kind of helps that process. And then after university, that that sort of continues and you end up with a core of people that you've just got tenure with and, and, and lots in common. Um, I think being overseas is similar. Some of the cities that are very international. So I, I, I think the word expat gets used quite a lot, probably means different things to people. But for me, an expat is somebody who's gone for a short term with a company with bells and whistles in their contract and, and, and sort of benefits and so on. But it's short term. And generally speaking, it kind of positions you already with a group of people. A lot of people will go not on expat terms, so they'll go on local terms, which just means you get hired locally like anybody else and pay taxes locally and so on. But it means that you've got a likelihood of more tenure. And when you first arrive overseas as a foreigner working in a country or working in a city, you end up in that university first year kind of mindset. You're just meeting lots of people. And then after two, three years, a lot of people leave. So you're going very fast on a hamster wheel with a very sort of limited sort of cycle and you find lots of people leave and it's quite confronting to begin with as that happens and then some people don't leave and so you gravitate towards them and then you find yourself you you just i use the word sinking which again is probably the wrong analogy you just sort of sink into the fabric of the society and you begin to meet people who are like-minded who perhaps have got married who have kids who are there on a on a longer and a slightly slower cycle and you just get more and more embedded into the fabric of the place and your friendship groups change and it's not perhaps just other foreigners who are there it's it's people who are born and bred there so so more singaporean friends and actually 
it's wonderfully welcoming. It's and it's kind of like family. And, and so when when my parents first asked me about what it's like with friends from university and home versus Singapore, it's like university intensity friendships. You know that three four years is a really intense time for twenty five years with money and proximity and you know all the other benefits of getting a bit older. So so it's a hell of a ride and a really intense friendship. The one thing you do get a little bit lazy about is actually you become detached from the people who are just arriving. And so actually you, you go through a phase of not really meeting anybody new because you don't have time with work and family and all the friends that you've got. So kind of bubbling back up to the surface, sort of cycling, cycling around and meeting people who have just arrived is actually a kind of a, a, a pleasure that you rediscover later on in the journey. So it's, it's very much that kind of, that kind of process. No, it makes sense. And and we'll come on to some of the ways you probably met more people in some of the other things you did outside of work in, in Singapore. But what you just said there, Hugo, I think almost takes me to the work side as well of obviously that sort of social life and how you, you build a life in the country is, is as you've described. I'd be fascinated actually how you found the shift to in work life in terms of business culture and when you moved over there. And also actually how that evolved as you, you know, you climbed because being there for two or three years as a sort of associate level or a junior level is is one thing. Actually building a career in a country like that as you did and, and sort of climbing to partner, that that's quite another. And it's a very big question. So I'll let you start it where it makes sense, but almost how you found the shift when you first moved. And actually, just as you described the sort of making of family and personal life there, how you found that work life cycle evolved as you, you know, as as time went on. Yeah, and again, if you know you're going to be somewhere for a long time, the, the kind of the, the planning of it, I think it's possible to do, but I think it's quite hard because it seems like nobody ever really plans. I certainly didn't plan. I think I bring it back to a couple of pretty basic things. One, one is tenure. So if, if you are very clear you're going for two, three years and your mindset, it's two, three years. In reality, you spend the first year arriving and actually you spend the last 12 months leaving. So I, actually, if somebody comes to me saying, I want to go away for two years, I just say too short. You, you, you don't really get your head in the game as a sort of a, a sort of month 12, 13, 14 when you're at the best moment, but, but you spend half of it arriving and half of it leaving. So I think three years is probably the minimum that you want to do just to be able to get to that sense of actually feeling like you've arrived and you're, and you're, and, and you're operating. So we didn't really have any timeline on it. And I think that helped because people felt like we were investing and we were going to be there. So therefore it was worth investing time in us. So I think that's kind of one aspect. I think the second one is just being really open-minded. If somebody says, you know, let's go to a local food court and go and eat some food and it's slightly scary and you're not quite sure what you're going to get, go do it, right? If you say, no, thanks, I'd just like to go and get McDonald's, it's okay. You, you, you haven't given offense, but, but you just slightly put yourself to one side. I saw a couple of colleagues over the years who came out and um, one American colleague, and by no means is this any kind of judgment on, on, on Americans, but one colleague who came out, and I think he was there for three years. His kids went to the American school. He lived next door to the American club. He went to work every day in a minibus and always took food from home into work and so never had lunch with anybody in the office for three years. And then I think did ice hockey at the weekend with his kids in Singapore. And you kind of look at that and just think, actually, what's really the point in being away? And I think for him, it was very much a kind of a career thing, ticking the box and was really good for his career. He came out in a senior role. But 
I just feel like you miss so much if you have that mindset. So, so just being open and embracing it. You know, if somebody invites you to a wedding, go to a wedding. You know, a, a Malay wedding or a, or a Hindi wedding. I mean, fantastic, completely mad, very different to what we would be used to. Just a great experience. So, so I think there's 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 that piece. And then the third one for me was just the interest. And and if I come back to history. I think there's two aspects that, that help you in Asia. I think sort of 50% of the challenge is a language. If you're deep in a language, it's hugely helpful in a country. There is no language for Asia that gets you around. If you do Mandarin, you're in China and Taiwan. If you do Japanese, you're in Japan. If you're Korean, you're in Korea. So there isn't some all-purpose language that means that you're mobile and active and relevant. It's a big old place. But if you, in, in my case, if I did history, and I knew the politics and the culture and the last 500 years of what's gone on in the country, the religion, all sorts of stuff, the economies, which nationalities play well, which ones don't. I find that hugely rewarding. So I'm absolutely rubbish at languages. I don't have a language bone in my body. But I know 500 years of history of pretty much every country in Asia. And therefore, I've got a level of interest. I've got a level of empathy. And I start off, I think, on a kind of on a good footing of, of content and education. And you don't have to do a history degree to have that. You just read, right? But that, I think, is, is super important. So you know where you are. I think it's a really key point. And it reminds me, I was reading, there's a great book by Reid Hoffman, the Netflix CEO, called No Rules Rules, which I actually got from a former guest of the show, Adrian Betteridge, which is all about the Netflix culture. And he talks about, because they're global, and I, I had to preface it this way because I didn't want to pretend I'd read a book I hadn't, a book called The Culture Map, which is by Aaron Mayer. And that the basic premise is exactly what you've said and understanding that. But I'd be fascinated how that plays out because I think, and I say this as someone who lived in London, London's quite a cosmopolitan city, but while it's cosmopolitan, while obviously you know, it has similar traits, because it's an English city, there's a sort of a slight sense of the English way is the way of doing things. And I'd be fascinated actually how that played out in sort of, you know, the culture of the organizations you were working in when you went to Singapore or to Hong Kong and actually how much of a shift that was for some colleagues. Because like you say over here, crudely, we just say Asia, meaning half of the world. And that's kind of just like saying the West, meaning the other half of the world. But to say our culture is the same as France, I mean, to say culture down here is the same as in the North of England is completely off. So how did you see people adapt to that? Because it sounds like something you did well. And almost how did you coach people? Because that feels like something, if someone's listening to this, wanting to go out, that could feel quite intimidating or worse, you bring, you know, saying this as 25-year-old Nick was, you're kind of, I'm a consultant, I can figure this out, I can bash things through. I don't know if that plays well in Asia, you can tell me. So so I think there's, yeah, if I had a penny for every kind of moment where somebody asked me, did I speak Japanese because I lived in Singapore or somebody sent me something from headquarters globally and it went to Singapore, China and disappeared to Shanghai for three months and eventually turned up rather battered and very late. Yeah, there's a lot of misconceptions and misperceptions around the Asia-Pacific region and what it's like, not least the geography of it as well. Trying to explain to people that popping up to Hong Kong for uh, 24 hours notice for the day to see somebody is kind of doable and we did it, but it's a long way. It's like saying, could you go to Moscow, please, for the day? So it's there's a lot of education that goes on. Once you're there, you learn and you understand. You kind of then become a bit of a filter for head office requests and, and people coming out of, of the US or out of Europe to, to, to ask for help on business projects and so on. And you become a little bit of a lightning rod because perhaps somebody says, do you know anybody in the office? And they say, yes, well, there's this guy who's just moved out. So you, you get that kind of um, responsibility and opportunity quite early. But you do a lot of education. There's a lot of kind of helping people understand how to get things done, the timeframes for travel, the, the, the time zones and the distance and so on. And 
it's a bit like being in the land of the blind, the one eye man is king. If you once you know a bit, you know a bit more than everybody else, and and it just evolves from there. So, it's actually a huge opportunity as opposed to a threat. I wouldn't ever see that as being a challenge for somebody going out. I think awareness. Once you're aware that that your view of that part of the world, which is probably based on seeing some movies, reading some books, and going on holiday to Phuket or whatever it may be, you know that's that's kind of a start, but that's not enough. So turn up and be a little bit humble and be ready to learn. And people will give, they will help. And it's amazing how quickly you'll evolve a perspective of that part of the world, which then allows you to be valuable back to your colleagues in Europe or the US, back to clients. And it's, yeah, it's pretty motivating and it kind of keeps you going. But it is about being interested and interesting and being open-minded. And I still see some people who come out and assume they know what they're doing. And it's very much a 19th century view of Asia as opposed to, to a current view of Asia. And you do see people kind of getting it wrong. And, and most people in Asia are just very polite and they won't tell you when you get something wrong. They'll, they'll talk about it afterwards, but at the time they'll make you feel good. So yeah, just being there, just being interested and interesting and engaging, that's how you learn. And I think you've asked it, but I'm, I'm going to sort of dig in more in case there is a yeah, a useful soundbite or list there of, you know, to your point, that open-mindedness is a key thing. If you're going out, be open-minded. You interestingly hit on that point around Asian cultures are typically less confrontational as well, which I think is probably quite interesting for some people. If if you're coming from a culture that is more confrontational and you're, you know, people are just telling you you're doing well, you, you might not calibrate to that. I guess I'd be interested for anyone listening, are there kind of, it's a hard question, but if there were three things people should do and three they shouldn't do, or you know, the, for the people you've seen succeed, what was it they did, which I suspect is, is your open-minded point. But also for those who you saw flounder, what did they do wrong that while it may have played well over here or in the US or whatever country they're from, when you took them to Singapore, and I, I won't say it to our conversation, I won't say Asia, so you tell me if it's Singapore or Hong Kong or other countries, but what did you see they did that didn't play as well? And if it's just the opposite of what you said, we can move on. It is about sort of being open-minded and, and, and engaging. I, I think two other things I'd say is don't assume. And I think listen, really listen. And when you pull together Asia-Pacific groups, the kind of proxy for Europe and the US for us in, in Asia-Pacific is Australia. And so, so when you get folk from Australia in a room alongside lots of other people and there are conversations, you get global people who come in, again, clients or colleagues, who will say, you know, Asian people are very shy. They don't like to speak up. You know, the, the guys in Australia are really good because they're giving their points of view. And and you kind of sit back and you think, yeah, but this is in their first language. So you're running the meeting in English because it works for you. And you're asking everybody else to come in to have a meeting not in their first language. So let's just say in Europe, we'll do this meeting in French or in German. You know, you can see a whole bunch of people immediately from the UK who would be disenfranchised and struggling to keep up. You know, if you did it in Mandarin or, or in, in, in Japanese, like you'd be completely excluded. So I think there's that recognition that it's not a first language for a lot of people and, and just be a bit respectful of that. I think the second thing is it's actually a lot of people's behavior is, is cultural and it's around courtesy. So certainly my colleagues from North Asia and particularly from Japan would, if there's a meeting, they will listen and they will let everybody else have their turn and they want to have all the facts together and they want to then give an opinion. People mistake that silence for being reticent and it's not, it's the approach. Similarly, if you have a presentation, most of my interactions in Japan with clients and colleagues is that, that you need to come with a, with a one pager that summarizes you know, the conversation that we're about to have or the proposition or, or whatever the discussion point is. 
but you have one page because it's predicated that for the last four weeks, you've built out the 50 pages behind it, you've done the detail, and you've iterated it individually with every other person that's going to be in the room. So when you turn up, get the one page, and you get a consensus, it's not the first time you've met and it's one page. It's because you've done that. And I think people, again, mistake that. And then the, the one, my favorite one is business cards. So business cards in Asia is, 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 a, is a thing, you know, and I, it's, it's, it's something strange for me coming back to the UK. I've ordered business cards and realized that actually I'm probably never going to use them. COVID <laughs> has, has completely killed the business. You can now get, you can then, I toy with it every time I see you can get sort of near field ones that you can tap on people's phones. But the, uh, the days of the paper one, I think, have sadly gone in this country. But it means it's, it's actually part of a, a formality and a ceremony where you hand a business card over. So it's part of the, hello, how are you? Have you traveled far today? It's, it's, it's handing over a business card. You, hand, you, you face somebody, you hold it in two hands, you hand it over, they hand one back. You have a good look and study it intently and it gives you some sense of grade and, and, and their, you know, their role and so on. And I've been in meetings where somebody has got up at the table and leant across with two hands and a colleague from the UK has got the business card and with two fingers and flicked it across the table and it sort of bounced off the, the table and skidded onto the floor. And my colleague is left there, you know, just, just, uh, I don't just think that's looking. something you should do in this country either, is it? <laughs> so it's, it, you get those moments where the individual probably hasn't realized they've just committed a massive social faux pas and it'll be okay, but they've just put themselves into a, yeah, okay, you're a foreigner, as opposed to a step forward, which is, oh, okay, you get that, you get that moment. Another favorite of mine is in Japan, you, you never leave a room and show your back. There's a fine art to leaving a room backwards without showing your back all the way to the elevator. And actually, kind of, it's, it's, it's doable. In a lot of countries, you don't use your hand, you don't shake hands, um, you don't, nor do you bow, but you don't use big hand gestures and you don't go and try and grab someone's hand or slap them on the shoulder. In other parts, there's, there's an awful lot of, of, of sort of physicality and intimacy pretty quickly. So, so there is no Asian way, it's different. And you only learn, frankly, by trying and being there and making some mistakes, but having built a, a bit of a relationship with people who will gently tell you afterwards, maybe don't do that next time, or maybe this is a thing to do. So it's kind of trial and error and it's experience, but they won't share with you if you're, it's a fleeting visit and you're not engaged and interested and you don't look like you want to learn. I think some great examples there. And it, it reminds me of the time my wife and I were in Japan, we went for the, the World Cup. So it was slightly different, you know, it was the slightly, slightly more westernized version. But even those cultural nuances, you say, you know, we, we were tourists, but you see them. And also I found it quite humbling when you're somewhere where there isn't any English. So obviously Tokyo had it, but we traveled to some smaller cities and, and it was not there. It was as soon as you're just seeing Japanese characters, you suddenly, like say, realize how different a world it is and you have to respect that. And I, I'm intrigued just because you mentioned your American colleague, and we don't have to talk about him per se, because you know, I'm sure someone will know who he is. But to what you've said there, it sounds like a really interesting cultural journey and a way to become more aware. And obviously, if you're, you know, you want to make a career in consulting or in a global business, having that empathy and understanding of different cultures is really important. My question is always, why'd your colleague go? You know, what's the benefit to people who aren't going to invest to that level of going? Is there, you know, for anyone listening, is it that suddenly you've tick, you said tick a box? You know, wh why would you go otherwise? What, what am I missing? So, when I first went out there, some of the people ticking boxes were ticking naughty step boxes. So they had done something wrong in the practice. And as a senior person, they were being parked for a couple of years to be out of the limelight. And, and the parking was to go and take a senior role in Asia. Oh, really? Yeah. So actually, and again, I'm yeah definitely not going to name any names, but, but there was a perception that when there was a proactive move from 
colleagues in the US or Europe to try to place somebody senior in Asia, it was generally a dead wood problem, as opposed to a, this is a really talented person who's coming to help, et cetera, et cetera. So there was, there was definitely a kind of a sort of filth failed in London, try Hong Kong kind of <laughs> mindset to some of this. I've, I've heard similar acronyms, but yes. Which I didn't realize till I got there. And actually, I was quite shocked. I was kind of surprised because there were some pretty average people in quite senior positions. And, and it sort of smacked of, you know, we need to send somebody out from the mothership because there isn't anybody good enough locally. And you kind of think that can't be right. And, and then actually, as you get to know some of these people and you see what, where they've come from and what they've gone back to, a surprising number, I wouldn't say a majority, but a surprising proportion actually are are moved out to get them out of the way because of something that's gone on. I think that dynamic changed and we then began to get people who needed to come out because they were being groomed for a higher role and therefore having some international experience was important. Then the next phase was actually, why don't we take people from Asia and put them into head office to groom them for international roles? Because actually, it's really important to have that diversity of thought. And I think it's kind of in a much better place now. When I hear localization used as a word, that drives me nuts because there's a kind of an implicit somehow being local is bad and it's, it's, it's a cheaper option and you know it's about cost and affordability. Actually, it's not always the right thing to have somebody to lead your business um, if they're not experienced enough, you know, so if you're new into a market or it's a, it's a new field, you need to have the right experience, but you need to be thinking about succession and bringing people through, not revolving doors and rotating senior people in. So I think it's evolved and got to a much better place, but I was quite surprised how, how many people were out there in senior roles, but, and they didn't want to be there. To your point, it sounds like that's changed now, but that must've been quite an interesting place to be as, as a sort of someone younger, more junior in my head, it's going one of two ways, which is looking up the tree and thinking, I can obviously get there because so-and-so is there and look what they're doing. The other side is, oh gosh, I've got no one to learn from because all of these people are, aren't the best. How did you square that circle? Where did, where did you get, you know, you mentioned around mentors, where did you get that mentorship and advice from? And I appreciate I'm caricaturing it. I'm sure they weren't terrible, but how did you, when you were junior, sift the, they're there because they're naughty versus they're there because they're good at what they do? So, so I would start by saying every experience is a learning experience. And to be honest with you, the bad ones that you really remember, you learn more. So it's a bit like when you're doing projects, right? You have some fantastic clients and great projects and, you know, you want them to go on and on. And then you have some terrible projects and some terrible clients. And whether it's the institution or the individual or the nature of the work and how it's been sold and scoped, you know, you get some significant scar tissue. And I can probably summarize in 30 years of consulting and 25 years in Asia, I reckon I've got two years total of terrible projects that were really hard. But boy, they are 80% of my learning. Absolutely. So when you see these individuals, it's kind of your own your own moral integrity and, and, and your own sort of values. You look at them and you think, yeah, I just don't. It's not about technical excellence. It's about leadership. And you just intuitively know if somebody's disengaged all the way through to being a bit of a wrong one. And so you look at them and you just think, and you look at the reaction of your colleagues. And when you're in the ranks, people will talk. And so you just look at who's respected and who's not and why they're respected and why they're not. So there's technical excellence and how you learn. And then there's leadership and motivation and mentoring and coaching. And you look, you have your own judgment and then you have the judgment of your peers and colleagues. And fortunately for me, there were as many good people out there who'd come out for different reasons or had grown up out there that were leaders. And it's weird you say mentors. I think it, I think it is mentors. I think sometimes people talk about my mentor. And for me, it wasn't. It was, I was lucky with two people that recruited me and, and got me out of uni into Coopers and Ibrand Deloitte. 
I then came to Asia and that two formed a group of six, seven. And those six or seven people is who I worked for pretty much all my life for 30 years. It may have been in different entities and different countries and, and you know, the, the label slightly changed, but effectively I work for the same group of people and I'm still in touch with three of them, even though I don't work for the same companies anymore. And when I make a career choice or I've got something going on, I call them and, and we talk. So that is super important. It's, it's finding that group of people and kind of growing with them. And it's not, I think if you, you can have one, but the, but the danger with one is if, if for whatever reason you part ways or geographically you're, you're dispersed, you kind of got all your eggs in one basket. And I was lucky enough just to have a group that was a tight group and worked together. And as it sort of logically drifted, as people went on to do different things, I was lucky and maintained touch with them. The only downside of that is that if you join as a consultant and 30 years later, you're still working with somebody, they're always more senior than you and they can never forget that you once carried their bag. So that just stays with you forever. So yeah, one individual in particular, I'm thinking, I will say his name actually, Nigel Wixey, uh, who's at Deloitte, a uh, fantastic guy. And, uh, and, and every time we catch up, he always reminds me that I carried his bag. So <laughs> some things don't change. No. And, and I, I think your point around that mentorship piece is, is really powerful and it's something yeah, I completely agree with because mentorship has been latched onto as a, as a thing in career success. So organizations are very keen on talking about it, which I think sometimes has unintended consequences. So the, the creation of career mentors and you know, in effect, your your procedural line manager now is called your mentor or you, you're encouraged to find a mentor. And I agree with you. I, I always think about it like fight club of, you know, the one rule of mentorship is you don't talk about it. And maybe it's just me. Um, but I just think if I sat across the table from someone and said, you're my mentor, suddenly it makes it, the, it's a bit weird. It's, uh, it's quite artificial. And I think the other, the other sort of blind spot that organizations have is they assume the mentor must be within the business. And what I found, and maybe it's the benefit of having left a business, is actually the, the mentors don't need to be in the business. Kind of logically, people want that because it fits into an org chart and an HR hierarchy. But actually, as you get older and evolve, the men mentors can move on. You move on, and and it's actually a it's a it's a relationship. It's not a line on a on a page and in an org chart. So it's something that that you have to put effort and energy into, and has to work for both parties. Completely agree, and I think it is that point of staying in staying in touch, building those relationships. And um, the other thing is nowadays that you, while it might not be a, an actual person, you can get mentorship. You know, this conversation, your advice will help someone who's listening, and they might latch onto you in that way. Take the things that you're saying, which is another form of mentorship. I'm a big podcast fan, as you probably guessed here, being recording <laughs> yes. one, and just the fact you can listen. You know, you can find certain guests and listen to them. You know, across 10, 20 shows for those who maybe haven't met their mentors in a career or, you know, they've moved on or, as you said, you know, there's other alternatives as well. But I think you're right. It's not simply, you know, I've been assigned Joe or Jane in the, you know, the, the HR hierarchy. So that's the only person I can get career advice from. I want to turn a little, Hugo, and it'll take us towards the story that you've just told. But something when we were preparing for this interview, you mentioned around career tipping points. And I think we've talked around your career, we've talked about various steps, and I suspect there were some tipping points in there, but you shared three. So I'm just going to sort of tell our audience what they are, and I'll let you pick them up. Because you talked about there's sort of a financial stability tipping point, family responsibility, and then a, then a health and wellness. I was really interested in this because very often in our industry, it's easy to focus on just get to, you know, consulting is quite linear, get to the top and then then good things happen. So I'm intrigued where these tipping points came and why why they were important for you. Yeah, and I think so, some of them are sort of more visible and more in control and sort of maybe part of the plan or part of the agenda. So if I take financial stability, for me, it was about 
moving through into the partnership. So, so, so this kind of perception that once you become partner, you're kind of on a path to financial stability and you're very driven, you're very focused, you're, you're making sure that you can afford to buy a house and, and have a choice about where you educate your children, which by the way, if you're overseas is private school only and, and expensive. So you, uh, you kind of have to be able to do that. So financial stability was, was always a, was always a sort of a, a goal. Exactly when that is, is quite hard to gauge because you get into that sort of how much is enough and what kind of lifestyle do you want? But there's sort of a, you generally, there's a, there's a, there's a line in the sand which you generally cross and realize later that you've crossed it and, and you look back and think, oh, actually, I feel better now. But that's important because that's the point where you begin to change the way you work and change the way you think about work and change the way you think about things outside work. So for me, that getting into the partnership and getting a few years under my belt, I kind of, stopped making it all about me. So I began to think much more genuinely, and everyone says they do this, but I do think it's a feature of age and stability, that you do think about bringing other people through. How can I make other people successful? And saying it and meaning it and doing it is three very different things. So I think that kind of stability piece was the tipping point for me, probably somewhere between 2005 and 2008, which was sort of five, three to five years into my partnership journey where I actually began to do more outside of work. I began to give back a bit, but I began to genuinely focus on how do I bring other people through as opposed to how do I bring other people through, but I've got to be first. So I think that that would be one example. I just, and if there's another example that flows and I'm breaking your thoughts, stop me. I just, I'm really interested in that piece because the way you describe it does make it sound easy. You know, you reach a certain level, a certain level of security, you know, financially, and then that mindset shift. I'm sure you have as well. I, I've met partners where yeah, they can be much higher up the partnership tree than you probably were, and that shift hasn't happened yet. And the reason I ask that is for anyone listening who is at that level, and we have lots of listeners there, was it as simple as, paraphrase, sort of one day you woke up and you felt different? How, or how did you get there? And maybe how do you give others advice to get there? Because yes, it sounds simple, but obviously as you climb your tastes change there's the keeping up with the joneses the joneses have the same if you know your mentor you mentioned still one step ahead of you and you know you'll still have a slightly less nice you know you'll carry his bag your bag won't be quite as nice like how, how did you get comfortable with that i think it was just there wasn't a sort of a, a, a moment a sort of flash of, of inspiration it was just this sort of growing awareness about giving back about sort of what else is there i sort of i've, I've reached this this sort of plateau i think the other the other point as well is when you're, I liken this to climbing Everest, when you're, when you're on the face of Everest climbing up, there's all these people ahead of you and you can see the sort of the hittery steps and what is effectively a full summit and you can see people going over the top and that's, that's the promotion to partnership and you just think, if I can just get there and you get there and ahead of you is a massive snowfield with 300 people all roped up in a queue to get to the summit and you kind of think, ah, okay, I've just stepped out of the championship. I'm now the most junior player in the bottom team of the premiership. You know, you realize it's just another long cycle. There's kind of moments like that where you look around and think, what else? You know, and, and I think it's it's that kind of growing awareness. A little bit sometimes other people, you know, people set an example and you just think, actually, wow, that's really cool. I should do that. Or I'd be interested in helping. And so it's it's different stimulus, but it's not. There's definitely, for me, there wasn't a, a moment of a plan and a date and a time or a bank balance or just a, an age or whatever it was. It just it just sort of happened in that period where I just had a greater awareness and just began to do something about it. And, and now it's just second nature and, and just seems like the right thing to do. So I think that that's a really organic, slow one that sort of creeps up on you. I think family, having children and 
congratulations, by the way, for joining the club. Thank uh, you. And, and not, not very, a very steep learning curve and yeah, changes things a bit. Three months in. I think having a family, and again, wh- whether it's your, your own children or whether you adopt or whether you end up with extended family, certainly in Asia, multi-generational households and, and that kind of cycle where suddenly you own the home and your parents live with you. But I think it's that sense of responsibility and, and actually you're kind of becoming the grown-up. Uh, you know, the sort of the tree of life above you, the branches start thinning and actually you're the one that's kind of, if not the oldest, then certainly earning or you're responsible for other people. It's that sense of responsibility. And I think that also triggers something in you as well to start to kind of be a bit grateful for what you've got and to actually to start giving back. And that that also came for me, I think, as our children, we got sort of through that that cycle of of two small children. Our first two were quite close together, and and it's, it's like four or five years actually of, of kind of hard yards, and and it's great fun, but it's quite consuming. And then as they start going to school, everyone breathes a bit of a sigh of relief because they're actually out the house for some some period of the day. So I've got five years till I get my life back. So oh, I say, you at, go at least, yeah. <laughs> and and I think again, there's a logical point there. And I think that the one that's probably the most disruptive is kind of health and wellness. And and I think the that there's a few points where I've had kind of not quite tipping points, almost like U-turns or kind of or sort of sharp turns right where something has happened. And for me, there's a few of them, and they're kind of some of the decisions I've made around career have been linked to that. So um I had I was diagnosed with sleep apnea in 2014 fairly bad sleep apnea. I was about 20 kilos heavier than I am now and was basically told I had to either have a CPAP machine, you know, plug into an oxygen machine every night for the rest of my life or have some surgery to fix it. And it was quite confronting and, and I opted to have the surgery and it was a complete life-changing experience. Absolutely amazing. I mean, as in it sort of pretty much saved my life, but it also just taught me an awful lot about health and wellness and, and kind of d- don't take things for granted. In 2016, so I, that was actually a trigger for me to, to kind of move on from Deloitte to EY. In 2016, I was coughing and sneezing with flu and um, a typical kind of post-Chinese New Year, sort of March, April cold. And I did the very English thing of coughing and sneezing and covering up. And I held my nose. And I don't know if you've ever held your nose when you sneeze and cough at the same time, but it's, it's, um, it's quite loud. And I developed what the doctor thought was a sinus drip. And I spent three weeks walking around with a sinus drip, which was pretty kind of just irritating and something coming out of my nose every few seconds. And uh, and actually, I began to feel really quite ill. And I went back to a, the guy that had done the sleep apnea surgery. And he diagnosed just looking at me that I was in trouble and that, that there was a problem. And it turned out I ruptured my dura, my brain lightning. So actually, I, I had a spontaneous cerebrospinal fluid leak caused by holding my nose, coughing and sneezing. And so what I'd been dripping was brain fluid. So I got whizzed into hospital. I was in for three weeks. They did some neurosurgery. They kind of put a patch in. They fixed me. And, you know, good as new, all, all good. Carpe diem moment. That was a real kind of wake-up call to you can plan your career. You can plan your children's education. You can plan your finances to some extent. You can be in some control of your, your marriage and your relationship. You cannot plan your health. You can prepare, but you cannot plan. And that was a really tough period. My, my mother-in-law sadly passed away from cancer the day that I went into hospital. So my wife was kind of on a plane between the two, not sure whether she should be back in the UK dealing with that or in Singapore dealing with me. And, you know, you just, it just takes you off the, off the rail, railway track of, of your planned life and just sort of, it, it, again, quite confronting. But ultimately, you learn. And then, then the third one, which was uh, not in my, not relevant so much to me, but my um, sister was sadly killed in a car crash along with her daughter in 2018. And again, that's not just the sort of tragedy and loss and what it meant for the rest of the family, but actually also just watching, you know, watching what 
could have been us, could have been me. And again, very confronting and another tipping point, which led me to think after 30 years and the big four, maybe I should go and do something different and not sign up for another 10 years and then do something fun at the end. So I think the the health and wellness tipping points are much more interventions that tend to be short, sharp and shocking. And, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you better and all that. I, I do think looking back on it, I've actually developed as a person and, and moved on and up from it, but you can't control them and they happen as well. So I think those are the three layers of, of tipping points that, that probably have influenced some of the decisions I've made around career. Well, well I'm really sorry to hear about your sister and niece. Um, and no thank you and it's and and, and actually you just realize it, it happens to a lot of people you know when you when you walk around and actually start really looking at people and understanding their backgrounds you see that a lot of people have gone through the loss of a parent the loss of a sibling the, the loss of a child and that is unfortunately much more part of life than i had ever thought and, and you kind of realize you're you're lucky you're sort of in a you're, you're in in a bubble that's an exception rather than the rule and again just it just makes you see life differently you have a different perspective and I think a much more positive one. Obviously, that's you know going to hit people listening quite hard. But they, to your point, there may be people who they haven't had that or they haven't had a, a health scare. Now hearing you, I, I'm, a, I'm a nose holder when I sneeze. So I will now stop. Don't, s- don't do it. Stop <laughs> that. This is now a public health podcast as well as a consulting one. But I, I think there's a, for those who haven't got there, and I, I, it might have been apocryphal, but I always remember one partner in my old firm used to joke that sort of the la- average life expectancy of a Deloitte partner was something like 58. Or f- And again, I, we accept all firms here, so I don't know how true that is please fact check that but the, the reason i mention it is you know your point there of you made a conscious choice to not step off the sort of escalator but to do those other things and i'm i'm really interested how you made that work because there'll be people listening to this and we all know consulting's a full-on career and yeah, I, I know people who sort of lament bankers because in banking, you know, there's a perception that when you get to a certain level, you just have lunch and sit on your yacht. And I'm sure it's not quite that easy. But consulting is continues to be quite a high pressure career into partnership. Like you say, when you're at the Hillary Steps, you still got that top bit. And there's um amazing I don't know if you've heard of a chap called Nims Dai, Nepalese climber. Anyone who hasn't listened, he's got some great podcast, read a uh, done a book and he's actually just made it into a film for amazon but he climbed all of the death zone mountains 14 peaks yeah it's amazing so i've I've not been to everest but i sort of (laughs) got very excited by that but that point around you've got to the hillary steps you still got to go to the peak so you're still working hard you're still at that death zone how did you start to structure your life to make room for those other things both in terms of your own mindset and you know the, the practical things like your own time but also getting your colleagues to accept that because you know, if you're in a larger firm like you were, it's not just your business where you say, right, I'm off for a bit. You've got an army of partners around you to kind of accept that. And and me listening to that, if I was a partner, I think, oh, well, if I do that, suddenly everyone's going to see I'm not here on a Wednesday afternoon. And well, when it comes to promotions and bonuses, I'm, I'm not there. Tell me a bit about how you made that work. So, so with the benefit of hindsight and just, just finishing off the Everest um, analogy, you actually have to get down. <laughs> so, so most of the people that don't make it on Everest die on the way down and 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 getting there everything goes into getting there and you use up the oxygen or you climb in bad weather or you ignore the weather warnings and and um you know all the kind of into thin air moments it's actually getting down and if you liken that career journey to there is a pinnacle or a point i don't think the pinnacle is 58 in retirement i think the pinnacle is probably you know late 40s early 50s and actually it's about you've earned the right you know, you, you, you've hit that point, you've been a partner for 10, 15 years, whatever it may be. And 
what you should be doing now is bringing the next generation through and giving back at work. And that's about getting out of the way. It's about taking on the difficult things. One of my mentors said to me that, that when the shit hits the fan, you want to be the one that runs towards the fan, right? And when you get more senior, that that's what you should do, right? So you should be making it easier for the younger partners and the people coming through into the partnership. You know, if you have any kind of insecurity or imposter syndrome or whatever it may be, it's quite hard to do that. But actually, that's just what I believe. So I believe that the pinnacle is is earlier in your partner cycle and that it's about how you manage the last few years giving back and, and paying it forward and still being you know visible and billable and leading and chargeable and doing your numbers and so on. But just thinking about the collective. And the, the biggest, actually, the biggest challenge, I think, if you look in the US and, and I think in some of the firms in the UK, they actually have a pension pot. They have a pension pool for partners. And it's in your interest to build the firm. And it's in your interest to leave a sustainable organization. And it's in your interest, actually, in some cases, to get out of the way. Most other firms don't have that. So actually, you get completely different behavior. It's in your interest to stay as long as you can, to take out as much as you can, to limit the investments made in the firm on your watch because that dents your immediate compensation. And it's a, it, takes a, it takes a big individual to be altruistic and do all the right things when actually there is no mechanism to reward you, you know, in later life. So I do think the structures of some of the firms, the partnerships, don't make it easy. And therefore, it comes back to the individual. It comes back to some of the experiences you've had. And it just comes back to, you know, what do you want to be at work and, and do you want to enjoy it? So I think that that's important as a sort of context because I didn't operate in a place where there were pensions. I operated in a place where you just took your earnings and when you were done, you were done. And therefore, I could see a lot of behavior and, and, and I, un, I now understand why that behavior was there. I think if I come back to those triggers and tipping points I talked about, those were probably the things that helped me get my head straight around that. And actually stepping out to do other stuff outside the firm gave me a much greater perspective and therefore made it easier for me to be a better person in the firm, if that makes sense. And actually to pursue passion and interest as opposed to doing roles by necessity because it was ticking boxes and, and kind of making sure I ranked highly on partner performance. You've got to take a bit of a risk. You take a bit of a personal risk and you use your mentors and you use the structure and you go and seek some counsel. But it's kind of like stepping off into a pool where you can't see the bottom. You just, you just got to do it. There's a point at which you just can't get anybody else to tell you to do it. You have to do it. And once you've done it, you don't regret it. I love that. And I think Hugo brings us nicely on to some of those sort of activities that you got involved with. And, and I'll start with the one that just jumped out to me, but please lead to the, you know, if there's others that you think are more relevant or interesting, guide me, you know, your time with the British Chamber of Commerce, because I also, and we should have said at the start, so I'm remiss, you're, you're the first OBE on the show. So that's episode 100, <laughs> first OBE, the show is going up. Um, that's and no slight to my previous guests. But I'd love to understand, you know, to bring that to life as sort of the what you did. You know, tell me about how that came about and actually the journey you went on with the Chamber of Commerce. Because I think that fits that, to your point, jumping into the pool and, and that was the unknown you found. So it was actually the first sort of step that I took to do something more structured outside of, of, of work. And it's still got a sort of fairly healthy link to work. But it was just circumstances. It was the it was 2005. I think that the 2012 Olympics decision had just been made. And that whole event decision process was in Singapore. And so the, all the great and the good were there. And, and uh, it was quite an exciting time. And I got a call from a colleague at PwC who said, uh, it's Deloitte's turn to provide a treasurer for the chamber. You lot are hopeless and haven't done it for ages. And I think I was the only Brit 
in employment at the time in consulting and, and consulting had never done it. So I kind of got presented with this, you're a field of one and, and you really need to say yes. And it just it just coincided with coming out of the woods with uh, with the two younger kids and a little bit of that sort of stability I talked about earlier. And I thought, yeah, all right, why not? And there was a wonderful chap called Terry O'Connor who was the president. And I went in and he said, it's a two-year term and, and do the treasurer and, you know, just play the role. This is what I'm looking for. You know, see if you enjoy it. And uh, if you do, then then carry on. And I think there's a six-year term in the chamber uh, in Singapore being on the board after which you have to step out. And, and it's a good one just to sort of revolve and, and rotate people. And if you do a treasurer or a secretary role, you can add on. And if you end up being vice president or president, you can add on again to a maximum of 10. And so I started as the treasurer, went into the board, then became a vice president, and then eventually became the president. And it, it just sort of got a, took a life of its own. And that sort of defined me very much between 2005 and 2015, 16. In fact, it was 2016 because my last board meet, my last AGM, I couldn't attend because I was in hospital with a leaky brain. So I remember it quite well. And to begin with, it was very much about, I'd like to do this, but I was quite defensive about work and about how much time I could get off. And so the meetings were always before 8.30 in the morning and or after six o'clock at night. And I was traveling, so I'd dial into stuff. And so I kind of spent a lot of time managing what I expectations and what I couldn't do and slightly kind of keeping it quiet at work. And I just really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the people. I enjoyed the chance to sort of meet other companies and other executives, much more plugged into the Singapore community and, and the kind of the government. And, and all of that exposure was, even though I'd lived in Singapore at that point for, for 10 years, it was just a whole new kind of area for me that, that I could give back. I could add some value. You know, you don't get paid for it. You're giving your time. And it was just really, really rewarding. It just surprised me how rewarding it was. And I carried on doing that through till... 2016. The, the second trigger point was 2009 when our youngest was born. And you, you don't get very much paternity leave. I think I got five days paternity leave. And I sat there and I thought with the benefit of hindsight of, of how I used my paternity leave badly for the first two, I decided to take half days. I took a half day a week. I took Monday mornings off basically to, to, to sort of take the edge off the, the beginning of the week for my wife. And I did that for 10 weeks. And actually I didn't take it off. I just worked from home. And that then became a thing for me pretty much from then on that I would try to not travel on Sunday nights and I would work at home on Monday mornings. I just got so much more done. I could be around with the baby and actually the weekends were better. I, I, have, I had this sort of pathological fear of Sunday evenings from going back to school and it just sort of t I just took it with me into adult life. And that was the trigger point where I actually began to feel better about Sundays but also I began to proactively kind of plan to allow me to do the things that were that were enjoyable. And I did a lot of chamber work on Monday mornings. And then as I got more senior, uh, obviously it was a great network and I, I, I kind of wrote the firm in to help and the firm contributed time and people and, and some sponsorship money. But also I think the firm got quite a lot back from it just in terms of networking and, and, and the kind of the, the people that, that we got to meet. And it kind of became quite an easy thing when I left Deloitte and went to EY to, to, to take that with me. Um, and I did it for, I think, about 18 months at EY. And then I reached the end of my term and stepped out. And it was a fantastic journey, but it pretty much triggered all the other things that I did. So so you get to pick the charities that the chamber donates to each year. And, and for me, certainly in some parts of Asia where I've lived and worked, disability is a big challenge. So I think in terms of gender and age and ethnic diversity, for, for different reasons, you've got countries that are in different places. But actually, I think the cultures mostly in Southeast Asia are maternal, not paternal. So there is a significant number of, sort of women in leadership. 
but disability is a big challenge in Asia. It's not seen, it's not understood. It's seen as a, as a, as a, as a, as a sin, as a stain. And people, you know, tend to hide somebody if they're disabled. And so things like the writing for the disabled and, and being able to kind of get involved in some of those charities was, was really important. And then more from a, from a British side, my father served in the Navy. I was born down at Dartmouth and actually he served in Asia, which was a little bit of a trigger for me to, to go. And so Help for Heroes and some of those organizations, we kind of, we, we were able to launch them in Singapore. So it kind of becomes a platform for you to, to bring some of your interests and aspirations to the table. You, you learn some stuff and, and, and adopt things, but you can also bring things that are a passion. And it was just, yeah, it was a great journey. Really great. It sounds it, and uh, I mean, there's a lot in there, so I won't I won't repeat all of the yeah all of the great advice. But yeah, you, I remember the Sunday evenings from when I used to travel with consulting, which I, I don't miss the travel. And I think your point there around just that you can hear the passion in your voice, that giving back, and just that doing good is actually very nice. And you kind of set the tone. And I and I think you know working with one or two other partners and and bringing disabled people into the workplace and just making sure silly things but going back then it wasn't the norm but just wheelchair ramps and just making making colleagues aware that when you're talking to somebody in a wheelchair you know take a knee talk to them eye to eye when you're making lunch plans think about going somewhere where you can bring them in um i had a colleague who who was profoundly deaf who used to work for me and she taught me wonderful things about how to how to continue to face a screen or how to continue to face somebody so they could lip read rather than, you know, turning your head away or turning to the whiteboard to, to put things up. And just awareness. And it's kind of quite humbling. And, and also, again, just I love learning, right? So, so learning isn't necessarily a technical thing. It's still sort of a cultural thing, an awareness thing. And it's not necessary that you always learn something from somebody older and wiser than you. You learn from every generation and you learn from different groups of people from different backgrounds. So you just end that, I think I said, be, be interested in interesting. It's just, just that mindset. And so all of this for me was triggered from that kind of um, slightly opportunity presented to me, a little bit of a hand in the small of my back pushing me towards it moment with the chamber in, in 2005. It sounds like a, a great journey. And I guess interested what, Obviously, that ended in 2016 as president. How did you then fill that time afterwards? Have you taken on or did you take on sort of a range of charities? What, how has that void been filled since then? It's a good question, actually, because I, I, I had actually accumulated a bunch of things that I was doing, and they pretty much all came to an end in 2016. And some of them logically, some of them I had to because of being ill, because I was pretty much out of the workplace for about three, four months. And I kind of took a pause at that point and, and just thought, I want to work out what next. And I wasn't sure what it was. I didn't want to go rushing into something. And that kind of got me through to 2018 and 2018 with the, with the, the accident that happened and so on. I kind of, it's taken me a while to get back to thinking about that. What next? Um, that really started in 2019 when I went to the startup and part of my responsibilities, I was chief partnership officer for a year and then chief strategy officer. And one of the things I got to set was the kind of social impact agenda. And that was the time where I think it really, it was the first time I'd actually had a role which kind of included doing this, which was fantastic. And the themes were very similar. So I'll call out three, which is just where I spend, spend some time. I'll call out four. One is a fantastic group called With You, With Me in Australia. Tom Moore is the, is the leader and CEO. Um, small number of guys, all ex-army. And they had very tough experiences coming back into the civilian working world post-military and it really hit them hard and it led to them creating the company which effectively provides really high quality training and education for people in this case mostly veterans around technology 
uh, all sorts of emerging technologies. And uh, I got to meet the guys through the role I had at, at, at the startup, but we've stayed in touch. And actually, it's fantastic. And it's sort of it's it's sort of s- synchronous with uh, Help for Heroes and the military theme through Dad, but basically helping veterans get back into the workforce, but actually addressing a big gap in the workforce around uh, people who are kind of deeply trained and, and have the right. The, the match of the profile of the of the role they did in the military with the kind of would you be a cyber expert are you a kind of scrum master uh, are you going to be a configuration person are you deep in data and analytics you know do you want to be fronting up to clients do you want to be in the background and just just the sort of the moderating the, the sort of the moderating and the psychometric tests and the modeling of people two roles um, brilliant organization so 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 i very much enjoy working with them a group called Astrid, a charity here, uh, Steve Schutz, who I was chatting to yesterday. They focus on people who are either end of life or uh, dealing with terminal illness, and they provide a forum and training and a passage back to the workplace for the duration of their working life. And actually, they look after them, but they also look after their carers, so basically people who are either physically unable to come back full-time into the workplace or have commitments that prevent them from doing so. So kind of you know, 20 hours a week and maybe outside of regular working hours. But because disease and, and, and illness is is indiscriminatory, you've got some fantastic people, highly qualified with, with great skill sets, who would be a huge sort of benefit to an organization. And they're in a silent, invisible work pool. And they don't fit the norm of kind of mainstream, you know, 40, 45 hour full-time working. And again, a, a link sort of with Steve through uh, his brother who who founded the organization uh, with him and, and sadly passed away of cancer, ex-Navy, just a few connections there. So so I got introduced and again, we're trying to find ways to work together. And then an organization called The Conduit, uh, which is a social impact club in London, founded by, by a, a couple of guys um, who I know from Asia. And again, the world's sort of first social impact organization, club, stroke, uh, investment fund and connecting money with ideas and opportunities and just providing a bit of a voice and and i very much enjoy getting involved there so just a few things that i've begun to do it's been difficult between singapore and the uk and lockdown and so on but that's kind of where my passion is at the moment well i I like how you say just a few things those those all sound like great things and yeah, to your point, it's clear you're making time with those, obviously, with your new role. I assume the new role is a full-time role? The new role is a full-time role. So actually Absolutely. being able to balance that, you know, as, as you're sort of practicing what you preach, it wasn't just the lucky call in, in Asia that you you did. Obviously, coming back here, you're making it work here, which I think is great for anyone listening who's thinking of doing the same. And some really interesting charities there. The, the last one reminds me of, actually, it's a, a charity I'm a member of called the English Speaking Union, which is sort of it's all about helping people through debate but the club element reminded me because they have a club on um in green park but it hosts everything from sort of debates through to sort of speaking competitions for children and yeah just i think something i've I've said i should get more involved in but there's always been an excuse why not so i think something i'm taking from our our conversation today hugo the other one is social mobility which is something i it's hot on my list i I think what I'm learning from this is I need to stop saying it will be on my list someday and carve out that time to make it on my list today. But maybe that's one to ask you about afterwards. Yeah, privilege, I think, is probably the biggest issue for me that's reared its head and, and or, or become very visible in the last two years of pandemic. There's there's a small group of very lucky people who were wealthy and who are now wealthier, and there's everybody else. And and I think it's flattened a lot of people, flattened a lot of aspirations. It's, it's eaten up savings. It's caused all sorts of challenges. But I think the world is 
is uh, the stark reality of privilege is much more visible now than it ever has been. And that's in, in all sorts of societies and, you know, across the world. And yeah, that's a little bit of the, of the, of the kind of me wanting to do more of the conduit is, is around that. We'll have a chat after this, Hugo, because I'm uh, conscious of our time. And so I say, well, I could do that conversation and I think we will for quite a while afterwards. I'm going to draw us to a close because we've touched on some fantastic topics. Really interesting to hear your journey um, and thank you for everything. And I'll close with, I have two questions and then one which is entirely optional for you. So the first question is around books. You mentioned you read a lot and have read a lot of history. So I'm intrigued on the answer for this. And I will preface by saying this doesn't have to be business books. In some cases, it's not even books. In today's world, it could be a YouTube or a podcast. But quite simply, what is the book or books that you have either given away to the most people or has had the most impact on on you and your journey? I think if it's books, it would be pretty much anything by Yuval Noah Harari. I, I just have very much enjoyed his a historian and a and a and an academic, but just hit the, the the sort of path of his journey. And I started reading him very early on, and he just more and more is in the mainstream and visible through TED and through through newspaper newspaper interviews. So. I constantly push him towards my kids. And also Jared Diamond, who wrote a, a wonderful book called Guns, Germs and Steel about how the how the world evolved, how societies evolved, actually how pandemics evolved. He wrote this in 1994 and he's a West Coast academic. I think he's in his 80s now. Uh, he wrote the most sensible piece uh, in the Weekend FT in 2020 about, about the pandemic and about things to sort of think about and context and so on. So a big fan of his. I sit on a lot of planes in Asia and I just used to read like an express train. So anything from those two guys would be a, a big push for me. And then podcasts, it would be um, 99% Invisible, which is a West Coast-based uh, podcast from a gentleman called Roman Mars. And it's essentially about the fundamental sort of designs in our day-to-day -day life, not just architecturally and structurally, but actually also socially and so on. And hence the 99% Invisible but just a, a, a absolutely brilliant set of podcasts. And I think there are 480 now. And I think I listened to all of them uh, whilst walking during lockdowns and, and the pandemic. Um, but they are absolutely brilliant. And again, they go back to history. They deal with contemporary issues. They're very global in outlook and can't recommend it highly enough. Amazing. Well, some great books in there. And, and the podcast, I'm, as I said, I'm a big fan. It's not one I've heard of. So, and We've got a way to go before we get to 800 and however, sorry, 400 and however many episodes. So thank you for that. Um, I'll put links to those. So the two authors and the podcast in the show notes, I'm actually going to go after this and get the 99% invisible because it's always not, I now have the car commute, but that's a good sort of 20, 30 minutes each way where you can really consume a lot. Audiobooks are the same for me, but no, some great recommendations. And then the last question, Hugo, before I ask you where people can find you is Really one about advice, and this could be a wrap-up and a, a recap of things we've talked about. It could be something new that, that you haven't mentioned, but obviously you've, you've had a lot of people work for you. I'm sure if I spoke to some of them, you'd be their mentor. And so this is really, you've got three people in front of you. You've got one who is that graduate, you know, just left university, just starting at the firm. You've got one who's, I'm going to say manager level, you know, middle of the grades, have, they've got choices, but you know, they're still quite junior. And you've got one who's approaching partner, you know, it's there, sort of, it's the next logical step for them. And the question is quite simply, what one piece of advice would you give to each of those people? Wow. Okay. Um, so for the youngster just starting, I'm pretty much going to say some things I've said already. I would absolutely say, be interesting and be interested. 
Um, I think that's hugely important, both as a, as a you projecting yourself and, and what you're looking for, but also receiving. So it's kind of it's transmitting and receiving. You know, listen, learn, but but be proactive. And and I think added to that, I would say go with your gut, go with your instinct. So if you're doing work or working for someone or working somewhere or in a career path that you think is the logically the right thing to do for a career, but actually doesn't feel good to you. Don't do something that's going to you know, not make you happy. It is about having fun. It is about learning. It is about a positive environment. And I think some people, certainly when I was leaving university, ended up going into jobs that didn't suit them, but stay because it was sort of expected of them. It's kind of what the parents thought or what the peer group thought. So embrace it full on. But if it's not fun and it ain't working, go do something else. For the manager, I would suggest uh, the key thing for me is who are your mentors? If you're at that stage, to your point, when you're just starting, it's very hard to say, I found a mentor. You know, you, you need some time. I would hope and expect when you're five years in that you've got a sense of who your mentors are. And it may well be some, not necessarily the most senior person, but there will be two or three people already in your, in your work ecosystem who you just respect and you learn from and you want to spend time with. Don't get hung up about formalizing a, a relationship, certainly not from an organizational HR perspective, but just be open and, and just go ask and just say, can I lean on you for advice? And you don't need to make a formal process of it, but but engage, let the, let the people know. And if you haven't got anyone, it probably means you're not looking, you're a bit, you're a bit too focused on the trajectory. So go look, because you can only go so far. You, you need those people. To the person about to make partner, two things I'd say who's behind you because at that point your success as a partner is not based on you as a sole contributor everything you're doing up until that point is really your performance based on a group of people behind you but when you get into the partnership it's about multiplying that and you have to start thinking early and i didn't and so i'm not saying this because i got it right i'm just saying this with the benefit of hindsight you have to think about the people coming behind you and you have to think about how do i make them successful and how do i be honest with them. And so one of my weaknesses was I tried to help everybody, but I ended up spending disproportionate amounts of time with somebody that perhaps wasn't right for the partnership at the expense of spending time with others. And so then people look at you and they judge you and they kind of think, you know, either you can't see they're no good or you can see they're no good and you're choosing to do that. And, you know, whichever way you cut it, it kind of doesn't reflect well on you and it doesn't help the others. So, so just who's behind you, you know, who are you helping? And I'd also just encourage them to say, what are you thinking about in terms of, of, of outsider work? So, so, so how are you contributing you know, to the broader firm and how are you contributing outside the firm? Some great advice, Hugo, and I think a really nice place for us to end. I've really enjoyed this and thank you for, for being episode 100. The only thing that's left to ask is for anyone who has listened to this, wants to find out more about yourself, wants to find out more about the, the charities and organizations you're involved with, where would you point them to? Where can they find you? Very happy to provide my details, contact details to you and however that sort of fits into this the podcast and this structure my gmail address is on my linkedin profile i have just started working with cognizant based in london so i can be tracked down through that route but yeah very happy to make myself available 
Fantastic. Well, we'll put your LinkedIn to your point. If your email's on your LinkedIn, we'll put your LinkedIn on the show notes. People can find you there. If they want to follow up, they can. And um, obviously, I'm sure you might bump into some listeners in your new job as well. So congratulations. <laughs> well, Hugo, thank you very much. Really enjoyed this and enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you very much. And it's lovely to be in a sunny bath. It's, uh, it feels a real treat. It feels like a trip. <laughs> I'm glad that I could provide that. So thanks a lot. Cheers. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Climbing Consulting. If you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's nick at createengage.co.uk and I really look forward to hearing from you.